Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Overcoming Chronic Illness podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Raid, and I'm a naturopathic doctor, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by one of my naturopathic colleagues, Dr. Todd Medeiros. Uh, Dr. Medeiros joins me from the beautiful West Coast of the U.S. of A. And um, Dr. Todd, uh, Dr. Medeiros, if, if you don't mind uh, just introducing yourself to the listeners, uh, if you could just uh, say a bit about who you are and uh, how you got involved with treating complex chronic illness, that would be wonderful. All right. Great. Well, thank you for having me and uh, feel free to call me Todd. Um, gosh, how did I get involved with complex chronic illness? Um, you know, probably like a lot of our colleagues that, that treat um, the patient population we see, um, you know, I started out by, I was always interested in environmental medicine. I've been practicing for 15 years now and had always been drawn to environmental medicine, um, you know, like a lot of uh, physicians in our world, we see people that come in with fatigue and um, other, you know, aches and pains and cognitive issues. And, and you know, about a decade ago or so, I started seeing patients coming in the door with uh, Lyme disease results and not really knowing what to do with them and um, had been sick for a number of years. And I wanted to uh, do what I could to help them. Um, you know, probably fell on the list of physicians they had seen. There was, and and hadn't gotten better. And I wanted to do everything I could to help them. Um, and and so uh, you know, started uh, started treating tick-borne infections back in 2012. Um, went to some some great conferences and became a member of the International Lyme and Associated Disease Society. Um, and uh, soon after, about a year later, I was at an ILADS conference and and um, there was a physician speaking about mold illness, which I thought was very peculiar because most of those conferences are related to tick-borne infections in one way or the other. And um, um once you hear some information, I think it's hard to go back and pretend like it's not there. And and the reason why he was speaking about mold at a Lyme conference was because, uh, you know, mold can present in, in similar ways, cause a lot of the same immune dysregulation. And, um, you know, it, it's it's been a better part of the last decade. I've been treating both tick-borne infections and, and, and mold illness and other you know, chronic infections, viral infections, et cetera. Um, that's, that's kind of what led me to, uh, to this point in time. And, um, you know, it's always a pleasure to see patients that, that um, have myriad of symptoms and maybe have, um, you know, fallen through the medical cracks and, you know, if we're able to help them, it's, it's always a good feeling. It's, it's definitely very rewarding. And, uh, yeah, that's yeah. Couldn't agree more. Um, and do you mind just uh, sharing where you practice and what your clinic? Yeah, and whatnot? yeah, yeah. So I am, uh, as you mentioned, I'm on the west coast of the United States. I'm in California, just north of San Francisco, actually just across the Golden Gate Bridge, um, in what's called Marin County. It's a, a lovely area with lots of outdoor space, and um, our practice is called Marin Natural Medicine Clinic, and been here for 15 years. Fantastic. That's great. 
Um, well, I've been I've been excited to chat with you uh, because, uh, as I was saying before we started recording, I've been following you on um, Instagram, and we'll uh, post to, to your um, in the show notes. I'll post your your Instagram page um, after the the interview is done. But um, yeah, just I really enjoy your content because you post a lot of really interesting topics. You're uh, posting about you know um, more cutting edge research things, which I was saying saves saves me a lot of time because I try to stay abreast as best I can. But there's so much stuff out there, um, so I've yeah. got a, I've got a bunch of questions to ask you, and I just kind of want to maybe just go through some, uh, I won't say rapid fire, but just kind of like a bit of a hodgepodge of questions, just kind of inspired by some of your recent uh, social media posts. And uh, and I'm really curious to get your take on a few different topics like around uh, mast cell activation syndrome and yeah. uh, your approach to mold illness and heavy metals and whatnot. So I'm hoping we can yeah plug through a lot of, a lot of, a lot of topics here, probably take about four interviews to get through all of it, but we'll just do the best we can if that sounds okay to you as a format. Absolutely. Let's okay. do it. Okay, great. Uh, so just before we get uh, officially started, uh, just as per usual, nothing that's said during the podcast should be construed as medical advice. This is for informational purposes only. If you need any medical advice, please talk to your healthcare provider to get that advice. Um, so one of the things I was happy to see you post about, because it's one of my great loves in in uh, medicine, is uh, ozone therapy. Um, you had a couple mm -hmm. of posts actually within the last little while, one about uh, ozone therapy for neurodegenerative conditions and um, also for long COVID uh, fatigue. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I try to stay abreast of the research. I teach a annual ozone therapy certification course for clinicians. Uh -huh. So I do a annual research review every year. So I try to stay really abreast of the literature. So um, anyways, I'd, I'd love to hear uh, about your clinical experience. Um, using ozone for neurodegenerative conditions and uh and long covid fatigue and, and anything else you want to say about ozone would be lovely please yeah yeah great um so we we use a 10 pass technique here in our office um we've been using ozone for gosh seven or eight years or so and um you know ozone is what i often share with patients is it doesn't you know doesn't discriminate against infections it'll It'll treat uh, viral, bacterial, fungal um, infections or colonizations, and um, you know. Plus, it has the added benefit of immune system modulation. Um, really love that for some of our, you know, some of our patients. It it seems to work really well. We've been using it with patients that have um, long COVID symptoms, and um, you know, that's obviously one of these challenging conditions to treat right now, and we're still not sure the underlying pathophysiology, but, but ozone seems to be helping folks turn a corner. Um, the neurodegenerative post, I, I don't recall specifically if it was a study. Um, you know, we've definitely used it with some with folks that have conditions like MS and Parkinson's. And again, the same um, mechanism of, of immune system modulation, um, dealing with underlying pathogenic burden, um, those, there seems to be some benefit there. You know, I don't, I, I, you know, probably like other therapies we use, sometimes we're not quite sure everything that's going on or what's even contributed to someone's illness. I had that conversation with someone yesterday about long COVID, right? Where there's so much great research now that's, that's being done around cause of long COVID and what it looks like. And, um, but the 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 treatments haven't really caught up with you know sort of what we know about it. They're really you know there's not a whole lot to offer, especially in the conventional world. So, um, you know, being able to use a, a therapy like like ozone um, is 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 great for our patients. We don't want to you know it's it's like 
difficult to say, well, let's just wait another, you know, six months or 12 months or 18 months until we get the magic drug. Um, but let's understand if we understand the underlying, you know, physiology or pathophysiology that's occurred, then why don't we employ therapies that are going to help to correct that? So, you know, it's ozone's been, you know, just one of the, the, the great therapies um, in my practice for a number of years. And, um, you know, really fortunate to have trained with, with uh, some, some great ozone physicians nearby and, and glad we have that tool. That's great. Yeah. I, I oftentimes will describe it to folks as saying like, if you had a wish list of um, everything you want a therapy to do, like, you know, anti-inflammatory, antioxidant enhancing tissue, uh, healing mitochondrial supporting antimicrobial. It's like ozone does it all. And then some, it's yeah. just, that's, it's the best. Um, yeah. Of- I, I, I think also with our folks, our, you know, see a lot of patients that have, that are very sensitive to medications. Right. Mm-hmm. And so what's great about ozone is you're not introducing a, a, a drug or a foreign substance in their mm-hmm. body. And, True. and so people tend to tolerate it really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially our, you know, like a mast cell type patients and really reactive patients. So another yeah. benefit is that it can be used in a lot of, um, you know, in a wide patient population. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I find of all the IV therapies that we use in our clinic, um, I'd say that ozone is probably tied for first place of like least likely to cause adverse reactions, even in the super, super sensitive folks. Um, so it's lovely. It's a good, good selling feature. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. In, in terms of your experience with ozone, not to linger too long on that topic, but uh, in terms of say using ozone therapy in general with folks dealing with complex chronic illness, um, do you like, so what, what percentage of the time would you say that it's um, like more of a background supportive therapy that like helps to move them in the right direction faster, maybe not like rocketing to the finish line, but like, it's definitely a synergistic agent that makes everything work better versus what percentage of the time would you say that it's you know, it, it's a, it's a huge accelerator pedal that makes them feel way better, faster. And then we'll just throw into the mix, uh, since we're on a roll here, what percentage of the time would you say it just doesn't really seem to make much of a difference? Um, just, just ballpark, give or take. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think for, of course, a lot of our patients, they're doing multiple things, right? They're on supplements or herbs yeah. or LDN and a variety of other therapies. And so, um, you know, it's difficult to lice- isolate it as it's the only modality being used, but, um, you know, I would definitely it's the vast majority of patients that we've done ozone with have, have benefited from it. I, you know, I'd start there and say, you know, what percentage of improvement have they had? Um, you know, it, it, and again, we use 10 pass technique and, and, and people typically do it once a week. And remember, you know, years ago, someone it, it seemed to see this pattern of around, you know, after their someone's sixth or seventh treatment, they just really turned a corner for whatever reason. There was just, mm-hmm. it, it took, you know, they got to that point and all those benefits you just described seemed to, you know, come together and, and improve patients' um, symptoms. Um, so I would say, you know, 90% of the folks that we've ever used ozone with have benefited in some way, shape or form. Um, what percentage and, you know, how much have they improved with that? It could be anywhere from, you know, say 50% to, you know, 80, 90%. I have patients that are still in my practice or I might see now and again for basic maintenance stuff. And they'll say, oh yeah, when it was when we did ozone three or four years ago, that really made the biggest difference in my, and so, 
you know, probably like yourself, medicine is, we learn from our patients, right? And it's, and medicine's very humbling and um, just being, getting that feedback from, from our patients really helps inform us and in, in how we move forward and help other patients. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, and as far as the synergy is concerned, I remember, you know, years ago hearing or reading somewhere that, you know, if we were had patients on antibiotics for say Lyme disease, there was some synergism that happens between ozone and being on antibiotics at the same time. And I really like that. I used to share that with patients often. It's, it's, it's going to make all these other therapies that we do be that much more effective. Um, so, you know, great adjunct therapy in the totality of everything that we use. It just seems to have this, this, this big impact. And, you know, I think one of your questions was what percentage maybe hasn't benefited from it. I'd say it's, less than 10%, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if so, you have a therapy that is, you know, 90% or it's going to work in 90% of your, your population, it's pretty remarkable. It's true. Yep. It's why ozone's on my top yeah. three list and I don't think it'll ever get bumped. Um, and, uh, I yeah. appreciate you bringing up, um, just uh, and kind of alluding to the, or to the uh, fact that for some folks, and I'd say, I'd say majority of folks in my experience, like you usually it's around like maybe the four to six to eight treatment mark that you start seeing the change. Yeah. Like I, I've had, I, I always try to do my best to uh, explain to patients ahead of time. Like, you know, we're probably not going to see, like you might see a change after the first or second treatment. If it happens, it's not a placebo. It does happen. However, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, you want to make sure you give it enough time. It needs to kind of build up um, in the system, so to speak, or the, you know, the impacts need to build up. And I find that's, uh, that's, that's been my experience too. And I, I'd say similar stats in my practice. Like I'd say it probably has about a 90% like helpfulness rate, um, to one extent or another. So glad to hear you're seeing the same, uh, same kind of stats. Um, yeah, I, yeah. uh, one of the other things that I wanted to, uh, uh, I was very excited to ask you about, cause, um, I've, I've asked a number of my other guests about just kind of, um, any novel or like lesser known tools for um, helping with mast cell activation syndrome. Cause I feel like, you know, identifying mm -hmm. that and addressing it is so, so important for so many cases. <laughs> and yet I feel like the number of tools we have in our tool bag are just, it's, it's a relatively modest number. So I was excited when I saw yeah. your post about, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but was it ciproheptadine? Um, yeah. and, uh, you had that listed as an antihistamine and I was, it's been on my list to look into it. I thought, Hey, I'm talking to Todd, uh, today. So I'll just ask him about it. Um, yeah, so yeah. could you speak to that? Have you used it in practice? What's the, what's the story with that? Yeah, so I, I um, right, it's not one of the more common antihistamines that you hear, or you know, that commonly comes up as a therapy for for MCAS. And um, uh, I, I first learned of ciproheptadine from Doctor uh, Theo Harris, Theo Herides, mm -hmm. who's one of our you know leading mass cell researchers and uh, at, at Tufts University. And um, you know, he, I heard him speak about it years ago to conference and there's a, there's some unique benefits um for example it'll it can help with migraine prophylaxis right so if you have one a mast cell patient that maybe has a propensity towards migraines um I'll, I'll try it in those patients um you know i think like a lot of mast cell therapies and and kind of channeling um dr larry afrin who's another one of our leading mast cell experts in the world um, I've learned a lot of from him over the years and, and, you know, he would say with patients, you really just have to try, 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 and try again. You know, there's, there's no one therapy that's going to be the magic bullet for all. Um, 
I mean, I, I think on on the kind of work that that you and I do is is to get at those underlying root issues that are causing the mast cell dysfunction and um, mast cells being a part of our immune system get triggered by various toxicants and pathogens. And, um, you know, I think there, there's a cohort of physicians out there that will focus on just the mast cell component of it, but that's almost like treating the, you know, treating the smoke and not treating the fire, um, getting, just correcting the, whatever has contributed to that immune dysfunction in the first place really helps with the outcomes. Um, you know, I like to stabilize mast cells and do, you know, put people on mast cell supportive therapies while we're working on those underlying causes. Um, but you know, uh, I don't, I don't think it's the end all be all. I think it's, it's, it's a part of, or secondary to. So, uh, um, yeah, there's a lot of therapies out there. I think things like, uh, you know, I, I, um, I use LDN for a, in a lot of my patients and LDN mm-hmm. does have some benefits with mast cell. Um, then of course you have your, you know, your H1s and H2s, um, you know, Claritins and Allegra Zyrtex and, and Pepsids. Um, but then medications like chromalin or catodophin, um, those, those are great medications. I, I heard something the other day that, you know, catodophin is, uh, I think has three mechanisms. It's an antihistamine, it's a mast cell stabilizer, and it's a leukotriene inhibitor um, for all those listeners out there. <laughs> Triple whammy, yeah. Uh, but basically it's a, it's a, you know, can be a very effective medication. Now, like everything doesn't work for everyone. Someone has, you know, gut issues and, and, and leaky gut, gut inflammation. They're going to, they're going to be triggering mast cells all the time. I, I, uh, a couple of years ago, I'd always wondered about that connection between things like, you know, leaky gut or SIBO, leaky gut, mast cell activation, this triad that can, Mm -hmm. and is it, you know, what's chicken, what's egg. And um, we know that when there is bacterial overgrowth in the small intestine, that mast cells migrate to that site, they'll release their contents, which create inflammation and uh, then lead to leaky gut. When you have gut inflammation, you, you know, everything that's in your intestine ends up triggering this systemic immune response. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden you have this vicious cycle now where the immune system is being activated. And um, so when we keep, I always say it's like the annoying, you know, four-year-old that keeps asking, but why, but why, but why? Um, <clears throat> when you, when you keep digging deeper and look for that, why, and address that, you're, the trickle down or the side benefits are going to be, um, you know, immune cell normalization. Hmm. And, and just on the topic of kind of a side question here with the, the triangle. Um, so if there's, you know, MCAS and, uh, leaky gut and, um, and, and so was, was it dysbiosis? That was the other. Yeah. Yeah. Triangle? Yeah. Um, yeah. and so SIBO, I'm just yeah. right. SIBO or, or, uh, anyway, some, Any, something bit dysbiosis, yeah. but well, SIBO sounds yeah. good. Um, yeah. so, have you had, uh, like, are, are there cases that you've seen where someone's like, you know, trying to stabilize mast cells or working with um, histamine receptor blockers? Like they're trying to cover the histamine bases quite well. They're going after the SIBO with antimicrobials, but, um, you know, the patient's only made so much progress, but then bringing in the gut healing, um, implements, whether it's glutamine or butyric acid or whatever it happens to be demulcents, whatever it is. Um, have you seen that gut healing kind of break that? 
cycle, that kind of triad cycle, or like uh, how often have you found that as a um, uh, sort of a, I won't quite say single variable because there might be more than one component to it, but how yeah. often do you found that sort of treatment angle to be really pivotal to kind of crack an otherwise um, difficult case? Yeah, p- pivotal is an operative word there. I think it. I think it really can be for for people. You know, given that eighty percent of our immune system is is right there around the gut. Um, you know, clearly gut health has has a big impact on how our immune system is going to react. And um, you know, so for for some folks, you know, I sometimes say it's like having the tax in the foot, right? And if if the uh, maybe their gut inflammation is a bigger nail in the foot. Um, and removing that or correcting that, it, it could have a major impact. Um, for other people, they might have a, a systemic infection, right? One of our tick-borne infections or viral infections that you know therapies need to be directed at, at that. Um, you know, everyone's unique, right? And and everyone kind of comes in the door with their own set of symptoms. And you could have ten people um, with all similar diagnoses, but I guess what comes to mind is you know, what percentage is each one contributing to their symptoms or their, their, you know, adverse health. Um, Same thing for having 10 physicians in one room with one patient, you might have 10 different approaches. And, um, you know, we, as I say, it's, it's practice and you're helping the patient navigate. I think what's important is just, is, is being able to look at the, the patient each time with, you know, kind of fresh eyes and make sure that we're, we're getting everything that um, they're presenting to us and, and, and making sure that we're addressing each one of those, those tacks in the foot to help move them forward. And um, um, yeah, I, you know, sometimes I, as you're banging your head against the wall and, you know, trying to help as what we call complex chronic illness is it's like, how did, how did we sign up for this? <laughs> and it's, but it's so rewarding when you can help help patients and there's there's not many physicians out there that have chosen this path to um to go down with their patients but it it is so rewarding when you can make a big difference and and, um you know i i think it's conventional medicine will always struggle to be able to to help complex chronic illness because we just the model isn't set up to support that whether it's you know the short office visits because it's dictate that's dictated by insurance reimbursement to the the drugs that are all directed at treating the symptom um you know we it's it's always going to take um you know physicians that are able to spend adequate time with our patients to be able to use cutting edge diagnostics and and you know progressive thinking um kind of makes me think back to you know, anytime you meet someone and you tell them that you're a naturopathic doctor or experience I've had is, you know, a lot of times people say, well, is, is that like a homeopath? And, and say, well, yeah, I mean, we use homeopathy as a modality. Um, but I think what's unique about our profession is, is where um, the philosophy is different, right? The approach is different. The goal is to look and address the underlying root issues, which is, quite opposite of what conventional medicine does. Um, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll joke with patients. It's like, you know, it, it could be quite easy to practice the, the conventional model, right? If someone's, someone's in pain, you give them a pain med. And if someone is 
depression, you give them a depression med. If, and it, it, it sounds funny when you say it, it, it sounds so simple and, um, and, and so easy, but if someone's in pain because their immune system is dysregulated and they've got, you know, some underlying, you know, pathogen that's driving an immune mediated cytokine response. Well, that's a different story. Yeah. You might palliate the pain while you're, um, but you still need to get at that underlying root issue. Otherwise it's, it's not a sustainable approach to just be on an, a pain medication or whatever, you know, I, I call that the disease drug model, right? You, it's like you get the label and then here's the drug that's been associated with that label. And, um, you know, we're, you've probably seen this in your practice as well. And I've heard other physicians that have been doing what we do for much longer say that the patients we're seeing now are, are, are much sicker than they were, you know, 10 years ago. And is that environmental influence? Is it, you know, dietary? Is it all of the above, you know, other, other issues? Um, but the people we're seeing, we're just seeing more and more chronic illness. And I'd say in younger populations too, yeah. used to be the, the person that's in their you know, 30s, 40s, 50s. And now we're seeing people in their 20s and teens um, with, with complex illness. So we got our, we, we, um, we have our work cut out for us. And it's, it's a real honor to be practicing the type of medicine that we do. Yeah, my, I concur. And um, I think that especially the the group that we're both part of the the ICI, the International Society for Environmentally Acquired Illness, like I think that um, it's so important that uh, clinicians like us and, and others in that group and others who aren't in that group, um, hopefully a growing number are just um, mindful of those environmental impacts, um, you know, whether it's, yeah. you know, mold toxicity or chemicals, or I mean, maybe talking about uh, like Wi-Fi or other types of electromagnetic radiation, various things like think it's um yeah super important because i my my hunch is that we're sicker because of just having been inundated with chemicals for uh tandem generations now for a while um i, I think that uh that's my, that's my pet theory in terms of what's going on but um yeah that's i think it's I think it's very important to be aware of and man something's got to be done about it because we're we're yeah. so uh far down in the process like okay so patient you're really sick but like man there's a lot of steps that got you to this point and like man oh man we, uh, there needs to be more uh work done on you know more upstream to so folks don't get sick in the first place but that's kind of outside of yeah. my realm i don't know how to fix that that's more on the political level or societal structure yeah. level and that's where my head starts to spin a bit more yeah uh, yeah i heard a, a quote that, or a, someone being interviewed the other day an immunologist uh say something to the effect of look for it pull it up so i'm accurate in what he said but he, it, i'll paraphrase here he said um our our immune system our maybe our immune reactivity is a result of everything our immune system has seen in our entire lives hmm. And, and, and so, and he was, this is sort of a, it was a long COVID type of interview. And, and, um, and I, I thought about that and you can appreciate this knowing immunology, but, you know, for, you know, basically our immune systems do sample everything that we come into contact with. Right. So an infant, a newborn is going to have very, hasn't seen as many pathogens or toxicants or whatever it's, you know, in its lifetime, but as, as time goes on, and our, you know, macrophages and, you know, the cells that, that sample everything that we're exposed to, it creates a memory, 
there, there's an imprint that that occurs. And so in our fourth decades and fifth decades and sixth de- there's there's a whole lot that um, um, our immune system, this memory, if you will, and I'm not specifically referring to antibodies, but but more of this um, you know uh, re- reactivity and, and ability to respond, it, you know it's based on everything that our immune system has been exposed to in our lifetimes. And so, you know, why does someone that gets, you know, it, it back back to the long COVID conversation, but how does, why does someone end up with these long-term symptoms and then, then other, other people, not so much. And, you know, he was talking about how the, the virus can come and go almost like a, what he called a hit and run. And the, you know, and you could even say the same thing about Epstein-Barr, right. That, that maybe triggers a, a fire um, he says, starts the tinder and then the virus is gone, but the, the fire persists and that's that immune system response. So at the end of the day, I, I think so much of what we deal with, you know, has to do with our, with immune dysregulation and, and, you know, immune systems are, I think the most complicated system in, in our body, um, by far. Uh, and, and, uh, um, you know, some of our, our efforts to help patients get better, I think need to be directed at immune system dysregulation. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And actually on, on that note, um, I know you mentioned using LDN and for folks listening yeah. have low dose naltrexone. Um, are there like, like what would say be some of your other, you know, top three to five um, immunomodulators to, to mm. work with in practice, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. LDN is kind of like you said with ozone, it's in the is one of those top threes in my toolbox that um, I often say it's, you know, if I, that one, that one's, you know, often reserved for a majority of my patients. Um, uh, ozone, of course, being immune modulating therapy mm-hmm. as well. Um, I love, you know, some uh, turmeric is a, is a favorite of mine. Um, things like transfer factors. I use a lot of in my practice. Mm-hmm. Um and then, you know, ultimately things that um, glutathione kind of falls into that realm as well, but also uh, antioxidant detoxifying therapy. So not, not just uh, immune modulation because it can, but uh, also these, those other aspects of it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, those are, those are some of my, my favorites. Great. Um, and I use LDI in my practice as well. So oh, you do? Oh, great. LDI, LDA. Um, yeah. Great. And, and LDN, all the acronyms. There you go. Yeah. And, and half the time I recommend LDI to a patient. I'm like, so the LDN, I'm like, no, no, it's, it's the other LD one. Um, <laughs> right. Just just out of curiosity, I, I didn't know you were uh, an LDI guy. So it's always nice to meet mm-hmm. another fellow LDI practitioner. Yeah. Um, yeah. What uh, do you mind just sharing? Like which uh, of all the, the myriad formulas that are um, available, mm-hmm. um, what are the antigens that you find tend to be the most commonly helpful for your patients? Yeah. Um, and I, when I say, think of LDI, I think of Dr. Vincent's of antigens and, and yeah. LDAs, more of Dr. Schrader's and, yes. and the foods, inhalants, et cetera. Yeah. Yes. Um, and started with those. And then um, soon after, you know, began using Dr. Vincent's antigens mm-hmm. and, um, and primarily got into it for tick-borne infections. And so I've used the Lyme mix probably mm-hmm. more than any other in my practice mm-hmm. over the years. Um, you know, I'll use the the yeast um, mix and um, some of the viral ones now too, more so. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And uh, those are those are probably the more common ones that I use. Um, you know, I've used Strep and some other other mixes as well. But I'd say the the Tickborn mix, um, the yeast Candida mix, and and uh, viral antiviral or the viral antigens. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's the same with me. And I, and I think if we asked Ty, he'd probably say the same thing. Uh, that seems, those seems to be like, those seem to be the workhorses of the LDI yeah. world. And, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. With mold, I, I've heard him say before, I mean, if someone has mold in their body there, you can, you know, they need to be out of the moldy environment. It's a toxicant. You need to detoxify them. Could you help reduce their immune reactivity? Mm-hmm. Sure. But ultimately, I think, you know, we're, we're dealing with a toxicant here that needs to be removed from the body. And, and um, yeah, hopefully we'll circle back about mold down later on. So we'll sure. put well- a yeah, we we can we can circle to it now. Um, what, okay, uh, okay. What, what are your what are your, what would you like well, to share about mold? Yeah, it just got me thinking when we were talking about um, you know, when I, I when I went off on my soapbox there about how uh, or just how do we truly heal and and under, treating underlying root causes and um, my my mindset or paradigm has shifted a little bit and recently with um with even treating mold illness where I think historically we, we go, okay, there's mold and we'll detoxify with things like binders and glutathione. And um, I also use antifungals in my practice. And um, you know, that that's, um, and clearly the first step is always to remove the patient from the moldy exposure make sure they're not being exposed to mold. Mm -hmm. Um, But we, we recently started sending blood to a lab in Germany and that does, um, you know, it looks at various things like mitochondrial issues and or mitochondrial membrane um, dysfunction and, and uh, DNA adducts and sort of a looking at an intracellular on an intracellular level, what's happening there. And, and so, you know, you might, or historically, I think I would have, you know, tr- you treat someone for mold and you read tests and eventually their tests are negative and you go, great, we healed you for mold. But um, you know, when you, take it one step further and, and, and look at what's happened on a cellular level, whether it's a you know, cell membrane issue or um, mito- organelle mitochondrial issue, you go, well, this is the damage. I call it the collateral damage that's occurred. How do we truly heal and repair, you know, the, the, this damage that's also occurred so that we're, you know, maybe someone's asymptomatic at this point, but how do we prevent things like, you know, Parkinson's and MS and maybe other conditions down the road that may develop because of this damage that's occurred. We know with DNA adducts, for example, um, that toxicants, including mold, can can form DNA adducts. Well, those can lead to cancers. And um, how do we truly help someone heal? And I don't, you know, um, at least in my practice, uh, I, I think that hasn't always um been you know at the forefront i think most most people too are concerned when they're symptomatic and once they're asymptomatic they go they're better but on a cellular level it's it's sort of hard to assess so now um my that shift a little bit i I, we do a lot of um phosphatidylcholine intravenously Mm. and um you know that is is really helps with cell membrane repair and and um, that's been a big part of my my practice with my my mold patients. 
Um, I, I'd like to ask you a couple of follow-up questions on that. Yeah. Um, and maybe just uh, phosphatidylcholine first, if you don't mind. Um, yeah. So I've, I've played with IV phosphatidylcholine largely under the influence of uh, Dr. Paul Anderson, who talks about the benefits of that uh, quite a lot and sort of like <clears> the <throat> cellular repair uh, protocols. And I, I know, um, I think one of my um, susceptibilities as a clinician is I'm, I'm, I'm inpatient for results. So, you know, over time I've learned like, yeah, I'm going to wait till like, we've done at least half a dozen ozone IVs before I make a judgment call. But for a lot of other ones, I'm kind of like, yeah. ah, like I just, if I'm not seeing a change within like, you know, two, three, four treatments, like tend to be pretty quick to throw in the towel, um, before yeah. moving on to something else. Um, with the IV phosphatidylcholine, uh, well, I've seen some like amazing results in terms of patients with like notable um, liver dysfunction, like cirrhosis or like other types of liver disease. Um, yeah. I, I've been so far like fairly underwhelmed with um, IV phosphatidylcholine with, you know, treating, uh, bringing it into the complex chronic illness world, but I, I'm my, my rubber arm is ready to be twisted to try it again. So would you mind just sharing like, uh, is like how many treatments would you typically need to run to see a change? Uh, what kind of changes have you been seeing? Um, if you don't mind just sharing on that, could you, could you please sell me on trying the phosphatidylcholine yeah, yeah. IVs again, please, uh, for my patient's sake, because I don't want to be missing something important for them. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I don't, uh, clearly doesn't, doesn't work for, for everyone. Um, I, you know, I've, I've learned about PC peripherally from other physicians and that have had great success. And, you know, there's some kind of um, leading researchers out there that have, that have, um, you know, Patricia Kane was really in obviously all her lipid research and her husband, uh, her late husband, Ed Kane. And um, so the, the, you know, the, pro what the protocol isn't just PC, of course, it, in, you know, we often use other, um, glutathione's involved and methylation support and some nutrient support now that, especially since we're, we're using the, this, um, lab where we can see, you know, intracellular, maybe nutrient deficiencies like zinc for DNA repair. Um, and there, I, I mean, as, as far as the number of treatments are concerned, I, there were some researchers, maybe a half dozen years ago that were looking um they were looking under at cell membranes under electronic microscope and they had um you know people that you could see the damage that had occurred and then they administered a number of, of um certain dose of phosphatidylcholine over a period of time and then reassessed the cell membranes and they came up with an equation that was some around you know i think it's it's one one gram of phosphatidylcholine per kilogram of body weight. And that can equate to, um, you know, it ends up being uh, whatever we end up administering. It might be 20 IVs, right? Or more yeah, depending on someone's size. Yeah. So it's a lot. And, and I think also historically we were kind of basing that off of just information we knew and we hope that it was working on the cellular level. And now I'm, I'm excited that we're, kind of measuring, I call it, I tell my patients, it's like we're quantifying what's going on within on a cellular level, which we've really never been able to do. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to follow up samples that will, you know, we'll retest and see what, you know, what's changed after those treatments. Mm -hmm. um, the, the group that was doing the microscopic work, I don't, I don't know if that lab ever became commercially available. I think there was talk of it years ago, but it, to my knowledge, it, it's not available for, for us or public use as research. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, you might know about it. I, 
the yeah so anyhow I, this is oh, the sorry, one which, which no no sorry i'm oh, not just nodding because i'm hearing you but oh, no, okay, I, don't know, I don't know what it is sure sure um yeah the research there were researchers in the uk that were doing that work and i don't think that lab ever came to be you know publicly available so there's very few ways to assess what's happening on a cellular level and 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 i guess this way are um i'm excited you know to to see what comes from doing those protocols with patients and then repeating their blood work to see hmm. you know what's improved on a cellular level yeah so, and um just so i'm not reading incorrectly here so is yeah. it sometimes taking like around 20 treatments with iv phosphatidylcholine along with the glutathione and other adjuncts to see mm -hmm. clinical changes or like what's what would be a but if somebody's going to come in weekly for IV phosphatidylcholine with the appropriate adjuncts, like uh, do they need four treatments to see a change on average? Ten? Like I'm just curious. Yeah, it's a good question, and I, you know, I tend not to um, necessarily monitor the, uh, you know, the efficacy of something based on their symptom improvement. Mm -hmm. You know, if someone is out of their moldy environment and we know that they were maybe in it for a period of time or they look back and they go, gosh, even the house before I was in had a lot of mold and mm -hmm. they just successive exposures to mycotoxins and and, and maybe they're presenting with, um, you know, a neurodegenerative condition. Um, then, you know, I, what I often say with, you know, chasing symptoms is sometimes like the dog chasing his tail. It'll, you know, drive the patient mad. It'll drive the doctor mad. Um, mm -hmm. But part of it has, you know, in this case, it'd be looking at that, uh, the, the objective lab evidence, you know, okay. are we seeing improvements there? And clearly people will report, you know, I get, you know, a lot about the mitochondria and, you know, getting someone's mitochondria back up and working well. And they'll start to say things like, yeah, I noticed that I can, you know, my energy is better and I'm, I'm getting fewer headaches and maybe my neuropathy is, is less severe. It used to be a, you know, mm -hmm. whatever, four or five out of 10, and now it's down to like one or two out of 10. So mm -hmm. you'll see these subtle changes with time. And, um, I try to help my patients keep the big, you know, kind of a, the big picture in mind, um, so that we're playing the long game and know that, you know, in this case, maybe we're also going to prevent illness down the road. Um, which is, which is rewarding. Yeah. We've got to take care of those mitochondria because they seem to be implicated in every chronic illness out there. So yep. I'm taking good care of mine as best I can every day. Yeah. Super important. Yeah. Um, if you don't mind, would you mind sharing uh, with us what the lab is in Germany that you're using? Yeah, there it's called IGL labor. Um, and, and um uh, first uh, learned about it from a colleague that spoke at an ICI conference, I guess, last year, hmm. last spring. And mm -hmm. um, it's taken taken a while to get, um, it's a little challenging to get blood over to Germany, but, um, you know, we've figured it out now. And, and um, you know, the testing so far has been insightful. Okay, great. And, and it's yeah. primarily like nutrients. And like you said, I think you said they're assessing mitochondrial function to some extent yeah yeah they they do you know cardiolipin mitochondrial membrane dysfunction there's multiple markers in each little cool. um panel yeah. um there's dna addicts that they'll measure they measure sod um uh, superoxide dismutase activity Great. um they also have a toxicant portion of the panel where they use a uh, a methodology called IEC, which is intracellular electrical capacity, kind of a unique way 
it's a way I'm not familiar with here in the United States, but it's a unique way of measuring toxicant burden within lymphocytes, so mm-hmm. in our white blood cells, mm-hmm. and um, and and that's really you know great to see the toxic burden. Their standard panel I think looks at 24 different toxicants, but they also they have other panels that you can run. There's a, a pesticide panel or insecticide one. A, a, a silicone panel if you're you know concerned about someone reacting to to, to silicone with implants um there's there's a variety it's very you know cutting edge and very german um yeah. <laughs> there's some great german labs and i'm i'm part german so i i take you know a little bit of, of the credit uh for my um is it measuring the i'm assuming it's measuring the mitochondrial function in the white blood cells then since it's a blood sample or yeah, it's um, that's a good question. The report comes back, and it's all in German, and and um, or it, it's, you know, it, it's a little difficult to decipher. I don't know if they're using white cells or red cells for mitochondrial membrane function. I'd have to I'd have to check. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely going to look into it. Yeah. There, there's been yeah. A couple, yeah. Was, was the uh, lab from the UK? Was that the Sarah Myhill lab? I don't know if it was a part of Dr. Myhill's lab or not. Okay. I, I know it was someone I, I believe um, that Dr. Kane was working with. Oh, okay. Um, okay. So from here in the US. Okay. So I, I don't know if it was part of Dr. Myhill's um, group or not. Right. I, I thought that test panel looked really cool. Like it was really interesting, but I guess there were some mixed reviews about the research evidence around it. And I don't know. And, and I guess you can't have it done outside of the UK. So I was just, I was just curious if that's what you were referring uh-huh. to. Yeah, yeah. This one's it was microscopic work and and okay. around cell membranes and then repair following a certain number of you know of of phosphatidylcholine right. IVs. Okay, yeah. must have been something different. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I know we're getting close to our our deadline here to wrap things up. Um, I've got a couple of uh, I have a litany of questions here I could ask you, but um, is there there any other topics that you're um, that you particularly like to talk about uh, before we start winding down or or otherwise I can throw something out there. Um, I'll defer to you. You've got great questions and and know what your audience likes. So I'll, I'll defer to you. Okay. All right. Well, so it sounds great. Um, Well, let's see here. Actually, we've covered, covered quite a bit. Um, So let's see here, I guess. Um, do, 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 do. Well, okay. So I guess maybe outside of the um, the the IGL labor test uh, that you just talked yeah. about, um, could you share with us what your top um, one to three favorite functional lab tests are? Mm, good question. Um, you know, I have a um, I would say a renewed interest in in, in Cyrex Labs. Um, recently, they some of the immune you know profiles that they have a lymphocyte map test and. Mm-hmm. Um, an autoimmune antibody panel, and those those are great um, as far as you know functional is concerned. Of course, I do my usual you know tick-borne labs and mold-related labs. Um, and do Do you mind uh, sharing which labs? Like this isn't a CME, oh, uh, you know? Uh, yeah, uh, for sure, we can say anything. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I primarily use Igenix for for tick-borne. Infections mm-hmm. and I, I usually uh, I prefer to do the, a, a full panel the first time. What I, the TBD four panel, which is is fairly comprehensive. Um, 
you know, for viruses, I've been using Infecto Labs T cell testing. Hmm. Um, Infecto Labs in Wisconsin. Oh, okay. And uh, I'm sorry, they... is that so? Oh, sorry to interrupt. Is that uh, no. like through Ellie Spot testing or some other type of T cell? Yeah, test? they're what are the they're T cell tests. So uh, Infecto started in Germany as as well, and mm-hmm. um, they they have a North American lab now and for a few years mm-hmm. um and they they call it you know they're looking at at um teen, uh interleukin 2 and um oh what is their other cytokine it, it's their t-cell profiles that they'll run and and they do you know what's great about the t-cell test of course is whether or not that you i think it helps people determine if it's an active infection or not yeah, right yeah, sure. but viruses in particular antibody testing's never been that reliable a lot of people that you know will say that they have ebv and of course they just have high igg titers and mm-hmm. you know we used to kind of default and say well maybe yeah that's that's a reactivated infection that's mm-hmm. raised up these igg titers but it's yeah. it's really still a little gray and ambiguous and um but the t-cell testing is is really in at least in my experience it's it's insightful and if i see a positive t-cell test i'm going to think you know it's a uh, interferon gamma interleukin 2 or the two that they look at with um at infecto lab anyhow if i see a positive t-cell test i know it's going to be that's an active infection it's something that's going to get my attention and mm-hmm. you know Great. i want to treat um, with mold testing, I, um, you know, I've always, uh, I've used urine mycotoxin testing over the years, about three years ago, I was introduced to, um, my myco labs, which is a, a mycotoxin antibody test. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I, I often uh, share with patients and I'll, I'll share it today that, you know, every test has a limitation, right? It, it, whatever you're looking at, you could, you know, whether it's heavy metals and, and, um, uh, you know, I trained with Walter Crinion in environmental medicine and Dr. Crinion would say, you know, that the, the six hour provoked urine test is what it's telling us. It, it's just reflecting what the body's willing to let go of in that period of time. It doesn't, we, we think it's telling us total body burden, but that's, you know, there's limitations there. There's, there's variables that come into play. Um, you could say the same thing about a urine mycotoxin test. Um, mycotoxin antibody testing has, has been, um, you know, it's, I've appreciated it the last few years with my patients. Um, but I've also, I don't think it's, I think it's missed some patients as well. And, but again, it's just telling us that there's an immune response to mycotoxins. Someone can still excrete mycotoxins in their urine, which in theory would reflect a toxic burden. Um, but I also, I think urine testing has a limitation, right? I, it's like if I came out, went over to someone's house that had mold and, you know, spent two hours there and then collected my urine the next morning, I'm going to see mycotoxins. That doesn't necessarily mean that I have mold illness or mold toxicity. It means I'm ex- that's the normal route of elimination. Mm-hmm. So every test has its limitation. Um, I think that's where we come in as clinicians is to, you know, interpret the results, um, see if, if the you know the information the objective evidence um is consistent with the subjective patient you know complaints or symptoms and um and then we you know we come we form that that um, interpretation and come up with a strategy to help the patient move forward with their health 
that's that's the game plan every day yeah 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 it's you know it's sometimes think about you know what are what are physicians what do we what do we do you know our job is to we we try to obtain and retain a lot of information to be able to um you know connect dots make um associations we see patients everyone's individual right and they've come with their own set of contributions just like the immune system and everything it's seen in a lifetime Mm -hmm. and um our job is is to put all that together and and um and learn from our patients and that experience you know carries on to the next patient we see because Mm -hmm. we've made associations and um you know some people you know need limbic system retraining right Mm -hmm. they're um they've had trauma or they're stuck in a sympathetic dominant state and sure they test positive for Lyme or mold or whatever, but maybe the piece of their healing pie, uh, the greater percentage is that they, they need to, under, you know, do some sort of limbic retraining. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's medicine's humbling. And um, I, I love the work that we do. I couldn't imagine doing it any other way. I, I think it would be just, it would be unfulfilling to, to to practice that disease drug model that I I referred to earlier. Oh, you're you're definitely in the right field because you're obviously really passionate about you oh, you do as am I, and I'm thankful we have groups like ICI and and ILADS and others where yeah. Yeah, it just draws a lot of really passionate docs, and we need each other to lean on and learn from. So yeah. glad to be part of yeah. those groups. Um, well, uh, just where we're um, a couple of minutes over our, our, our time here. So thank, thanks for right. the extra bit of time. And I really appreciate you chatting right. with me today. Um, just before we part ways, um, would you mind just sharing with folks um, how they can get in touch with you? If they uh, like, do you offer um, long distance consultation services? Um, do you have any online offerings, um, social media pages? Um, I already spilled the beans. You have an Instagram page, which I'll post yeah, in yeah. the show notes. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, could you speak to any other offerings that you have? Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, People, I, I like to write. I like to put out information. I haven't been writing a whole lot lately because I've been working on some other projects. But my website, I, I've uh, uh, put some articles on. It's drtodmedaris.com. And um, uh, my Instagram, I believe, is uh, Dr. Todd Medaris. But if you search, you'll find it. And my Twitter might be Dr. Todd. I, I'm not 100 certain there but if you post it in the notes uh, i will definitely do that yeah 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 but but i we do like to post a lot of um try to keep up with the research and, and post that on instagram it's it's uh get a lot of positive feedback that people um appreciate it and it, it helps me too I, I you know we're always learning there's always something new to learn and it keeps me um inspired to, to keep finding new information to share so it's good well we definitely appreciate it and yeah so and much I, to learn so. Yeah, I, I I don't do long distance consults. I I only see patients um, in California. Okay. Uh, so if they're located in California, then then I do see them. But um, uh, you know, people some enjoy coming out to to beautiful Northern California sometimes, and and, and so uh, um, we have you know see people here in person or or uh, remotely if they're in California. Right. Okay. Great. Well, I'll put all the contact information in the show notes and uh, thank you so much again for taking yeah. time with me today. Really appreciated the chat. Thank you for, thank you for having me.
Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, well, thanks everyone for listening to another episode of the Overcoming Chronic Illness podcast. Um, hope that you had, um, I hope that it was a, a fulfilling learning experience for you and please stay tuned for the next episode.